we're improving our reactor technology and there's a global advance occurring with the materials development as well. And hopefully they'll converge sometime in the not too distant future where we'll develop green hydrogen directly from photocatalysis at a price that's going to be competitive with that form from natural gas steam methane reforming. That voice belongs to Professor Greg Maver from the School of Physical Sciences at the University of Adelaide. He's been busy laying the groundwork for Australia's green hydrogen future. So vision that I have is that we'd have all of these reactors in a high solar region such as we have in the outback Australia. Mm. And these things are all just being exposed to sunlight and producing hydrogen and oxygen. And we directly would put that hydrogen and oxygen into pipes and pipe it around the country where it can be used for the best way to assist with the decarbonisation process. Hi, I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and today we're breaking down hydrogen. That is the potential for hydrogen to become a clean, sustainable and readily accessible fuel for the future. Join me as I discuss the opportunities, risks, realities and misconceptions surrounding this resource with Greg. Does it really hold the key to decarbonising Australia? Let's find out. This is the Discovery Pod. Hi Greg and welcome to the Discovery Pod. Thanks very much, Annie. Very pleased to be here. So, Greg, you're Professor of Chemistry at the University of Adelaide. And we're hearing a lot at the moment about hydrogen and the potential opportunities for hydrogen as a future fuel and to help with decarbonisation of some of our energy production systems. So, break it down for me. How do we produce hydrogen? Why is hydrogen now becoming of interest? What is it about hydrogen that we should know? It certainly has become a buzzword, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's actually not the first wave of buzziness that it, that's ever had. There have been previous waves of hydrogen, and they always seem to dissipate for the same reason, and that is because of the cost of the hydrogen. Mm. So hydrogen at the moment is used extensively around the world, but that hydrogen is formed from fossil fuels through a process called steam methane reforming. So what, what is hydrogen used for at the moment? So mostly, for example, in Australia, it's used to make ammonia, which is then used to make fertilizer mm. and urea and even AdBlue now, the additive that they add to trucks to minimize the amount of foul emissions coming from exhausts of large diesel engines. And you can also burn hydrogen, presumably, as a, as a kind of fuel. Yes, you, you can burn it. Actually, from a thermodynamic perspective, that's actually not very efficient to do. Yeah. The best way to use hydrogen as a fuel is in a fuel cell. So these days, I, I know my, my daughter did year 12 chemistry last year, so I had a close look at the syllabus and they <laughs> all, all the students there are learning about different types of fuel cells, of which one of them is the hydrogen-oxygen fuel cell. Yeah. So it's mixing the hydrogen and the oxygen together. You end up with water coming out plus energy. So, and that's why it's considered to be a, a green fuel because there's no CO2 byproduct or no carbon products yeah. um, formed. But because it gives off energy when you combine the hydrogen and the oxygen, that means you need to put the same amount of energy in to create the hydrogen and the oxygen from water in the first place. And that's where the problems right. lie. So you potentially got this, you know, wonder fuel, haven't you? It's not producing any greenhouse gases. The only byproduct is water, and that's it. 
But to generate the hydrogen, as you say, you've you've got to go through a process to capture that, put it into a fuel cell for that to serve as a a suitable energy source. Is that why hydrogen is becoming more of interest? I think it's becoming more of an interest because there's recognition that we need to decarbonize everything mm. that we do. Yeah. If you look across all of the entire spectrum of CO2 emitting industries, you'll see that you can break them down neatly into transport, for example. We know that agriculture produces, has a fairly high CO2 footprint industry, but the big ones are really electricity and heating. And the people who look closely at this, particularly from an economic perspective, it seems that it actually doesn't make sense to replace those industries with hydrogen. What makes more sense is to produce renewable electricity and to electrify everything. Yeah. So where does hydrogen fit in our, our kind of future societies? Yeah. So I, I see it as, and you know, many people do see it as two places. Mm. One is those particularly difficult to decarbonize in heavy industries that need a fuel. So the one advantage of a fuel compared to electricity is its energy density. So the amount of density you can have in one kilogram or one liter, and it's much, much higher for a fuel. And, and that's why our love affair with, with oil and things like petrol, diesel um, has been so strong because of that, that very, very high density. So if you were to get the equivalent amount of energy in a battery, that battery would be about a thousand times larger than, than the amount of volume of a fuel. Yeah, yeah. So when you need that high intensity energy, such as in heavy industry, that's where it makes sense to replace the fossil fuel source with hydrogen. Yep. So that's one place. The second place is just as a matter of course, hydrogen is a chemical and a large part of the economy around the world is the chemical industry. So these chemical transformations, these Chemical transformations, for example, to make our plastics, everything else that we've just become so reliant on, they actually use hydrogen as a reactant in the chemistry. So those places that make sense to use hydrogen, because hydrogen is already being used, it's just that that hydrogen is already coming from a carbon-based source. Yeah. So it's sort of displacing that the, the source of that hydrogen to being a renewable energy form. It's abundant, accessible, and already used in the chemical industry. Couple this with the fact that it produces zero carbon when generated with renewable energy, and it's clear to see why hydrogen has everyone talking. As global pressure mounts on Australia to lower its emissions, government and industry have been ramping up their focus on hydrogen and its potential to transform high-polluting sectors such as mining, steel production, and transportation. But before we take on these big ideas, let's cut it back to basics. How on earth do we get our hands on hydrogen in the first place? And how do you get hydrogen? Let's, uh, let's just start with that. So, because uh, it doesn't exist at a, at a very high concentration within the atmosphere, does it? So you've got to kind of produce it from another product. Absolutely. And so let's do some very basic chemistry. Okay. So Chemistry 101, yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Chemistry, well, this yeah. is probably year 11, year 12 <laughs> chemistry. So methane we know exists as a carbon atom and four hydrogen atoms, so what we call CH4. Yeah. So what you do when you extract your hydrogen from natural gas is that you pull out those hydrogen atoms to form H2. Yeah. Now, the easiest way to do that is to add oxygen into the mix so that the 
carbon reacts with the oxygen to form carbon dioxide. But in doing so, it releases the hydrogen. Yeah. So that's the easiest way to get hydrogen out as H2. You start off with methane, CH4. Yeah. So let's look at all of the other common chemicals on, on Earth, and we see what contains hydrogen, and the obvious one is water, H2O. Yeah. So it is therefore possible to extract the H2 from oxygen, but it's already oxidized, so you can't add any oxygen to it. So you can't easily do that. So the only way to do that is to put energy in and to end up with hydrogen and oxygen, what we call water splitting. Yeah. And that's currently done by a process called electrolysis, where we put a lot of energy, it requires a lot of energy to go in, mm. and we can split those atoms in the molecule and ultimately end up with hydrogen and oxygen. So that's sort of the competing pathway to make hydrogen. But as you can tell by the way I've just described it, you actually have to put energy in. Yeah. Whereas when you're making the hydrogen from methane, yeah. it doesn't require that much energy. No. So it's more difficult to produce the hydrogen from water. But that's what we're left with. It might be worth talking about an alternative form of making hydrogen from natural gas, from methane. So there are now systems, chemistries being developed where you can extract the hydrogen from the natural gas without making carbon dioxide you end up with solid carbon. So this is called methane pyrolysis. Mm. So this is a technique, and there are companies now around the world that are slowly scaling up this. So they end up with hydrogen, and they end up with huge, massive quantities of solid carbon. And these companies are currently looking for, thinking about what can we do with all of this solid carbon that we have? <laughs> it's not a very useful product. You know? So what can you do with solid carbon? Well, special specialized forms of carbon, for example, go into our, our lithium-type batteries, yeah. so in the form of graphene. Yeah. So there is some use for it. It's thought that putting carbon back into the soil, which you may probably more may, may know about more than me, enriches the soil. Mm. There are other processes that you can add carbon in, but with the scale we're talking about is it's just completely mismatched. Yeah. So we'd be ending up with mountains and mountains of, of solid carbon. Yeah. But you could argue that's better than mountains and mountains of carbon dioxide, which goes into the atmosphere, which is exacerbating our climate change. Yeah. So either way, we're not going to be able to extract hydrogen from methane without ending up with massive amounts of carbon or greenhouse gases. But let's switch back to electrolysis or water splitting. If you link that to a renewable energy source, then that's the answer to do that. You know, get that, get that energy from solar power or wind power or to some other kind of source. Correct, yes. So that energy can come from a re renewable energy source such as solar or wind, yeah. and that's what produces what we call green hydrogen. Do you see green hydrogen as a silver bullet for a net zero world? Grey hydrogen or blue hydrogen or fossil fuels, they must all see their sunset. They must all come to the end of their day because no matter which colour they call it, if it's not green, it's going to emit carbon and it's going to cause global warming. It's the energy source that industry and government describe as a clean energy breakthrough. And now green hydrogen manufacturing is coming to central Queensland. With access to hydrogen modelling tools, thousands of hectares of available land, world-class solar and wind resources, and deep water shipping ports, South Australia is rapidly emerging as the Silicon Valley 
of the green hydrogen supply chain. The Bluescope Steelworks manufactures about 3 million tonnes of steel each year. To reduce emissions, the company's exploring ways to make green steel, steel made with green hydrogen. Renewable hydrogen could be produced for between 70 cents and $1.60 per kilo in most parts of the world before 2050. That makes it competitive with natural gas in many parts of the world and cheaper than producing hydrogen from natural gas or coal with carbon capture and storage. You don't need a degree in chemistry to understand that the reactions to green hydrogen in Australia are full of excitement and hope. In November 2019, the Australian Government released its National Hydrogen Strategy with a goal to create a clean, innovative, safe and competitive hydrogen industry that would help decarbonise the nation. The vision of this strategy aims to generate thousands of new jobs, make Australia a major global hydrogen exporter and combat our reliance on coal and natural gas. And all of this on the back of the humble H2 molecule. But this isn't the first time we've dabbled with hydrogen. So what did we learn? So we, we've done our chemistry one-on-one. -on -one. We understand how to produce uh, hydrogen. But it's also not a new process, is it? I mean, uh, electrolysis and the production of of hydrogen has been around for decades. Uh, a couple of centuries. hundred even. years. Yeah. Over, over a century. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we, we used to, or we have used hydrogen as an energy source for quite a long period of time. But also we have burnt hydrogen in our homes for heating and lighting as well, haven't we? Yes. A long time ago, we used to use a form of gas called town gas. Every town would have its own generation of town gas, which it generated from, from coal or some carbon source. And it produced a mixture of what was gas, methane, plus hydrogen. So estimates are that it was up to 50% hydrogen. So that gas passed through all of our pipes. We piped into people's homes and we had burners and it was burning. Yeah. And slow. so that was going probably in Australia until about the 70s, in the UK a bit later and, and Europe. And then what happened is that we discovered these large reserves of natural gas. Yeah. And that slowly came to displace it. And the interesting thing is that as we went that did that conversion from town gas into natural gas, we actually had to change the burners. So there was this massive changeover of appliances from <laughs> one form of burner to another so that we could more efficiently burn the pure natural gas other than the town gas. Yeah. And we're now talking about reversing that <laughs> for something we, we might talk about later on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, before we get on to that, because you, you're doing some really interesting uh, work in this space as well, which would be good to uncover. I think the, the other thing about hydrogen is, is of course, a safety issue uh, as well. And, uh, you know, most of us have seen images from the Hindenburg and when hydrogen was used in the great airships uh, to carry people across the Atlantic and uh, across Europe. And so we, we're left with that impression that hydrogen might not be a safe fuel. But that's probably an unfair stigma that's attached to hydrogen uh, as a fuel, isn't it? Yes, as I said before, hydrogen is being extensively used all around the world every yeah. day yeah. and without issue. So the Hindenburg was an unfortunate incident and everybody has these vivid images of this massive white fireball of the Hindenburg going up. Of course, on film in perpetuity, you yeah. know, it's, uh, yeah, it's one of those lasting images, yeah. isn't it? But I, I will say in defense of hydrogen is that mm. most of the, the fireball is generated not by the hydrogen gas itself, which would have escaped very quickly. It was the outer casing of the Hindenburg that was made in a plastic material, an acetate, set on fire. And that's why you get that bright, luminous burning going on. Yeah. So it's not the hydrogen itself that's going on, although, you know, th that wouldn't have helped. And that probably was the 
the initiated spark that, that caused it to erupt in the first place. But for vehicles that were potentially powered by hydrogen, they're potentially safer than petrol in terms of uh, ignition for that kind of fuel. Is that right? Yes, there are studies being done on if your car catches fire and if you have a petrol engine with a large quantity of petrol stored in it, we see many TV programs where the car typically explodes. <laughs> yeah. That's not always the case, but it does have a fiery burn, and that's because the petrol is heavy and sits low. It, it can create an explosive situation. However, hydrogen, being such a light gas, which is why it was used in those air carriers, escapes very, very quickly. So it actually produces a safer flame, type of flame, so it doesn't give you that explosive type situation. Mm. Okay, we've covered the history. Greg, do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the research that you've been doing and working kind of at the frontier of hydrogen and the hydrogen economy? Yep, so we're talking before about making hydrogen from water and how you need to put large amounts of energy into it. So typically when people are thinking about green hydrogen now, they're thinking about making from electrolysis. And that electricity has to come from somewhere. So it comes typically, if you, if you want green hydrogen, it's got to come from solar farms, wind farms, etc. Now, in order for these electrolyzers, which are very, very large units these days, they need to operate constantly for almost constantly. So that means they need a steady, a steady supply of electricity. That means that they need to be hooked up to the grid. That means they need to pay the price that the grid requires for them to access that electricity. So this is the one key factor that is making green hydrogen so expensive, the cost of the electricity to do the electrolysis to generate the hydrogen. And so that ends up being a significant proportion. In fact, on today's electricity costs, that would be the equivalent of about $2 a kilogram which is the target price that we want for green hydrogen. Yeah. And here we have a situation where just for the electricity alone, yeah. never mind everything else you need, yeah. just for the electricity, that's you're already at the $2 mark. Yeah. And that's why typically to making green hydrogen now, it's thought to, that you could make it at about the 5 to $6 a kilogram. So okay. about two to three times more than it costs to make hydrogen from natural gas. Yeah, okay. So it comes so down to an economics it's argument. A, it's an economic barrier. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So what the work that we're doing is to try to bypass the use of electricity directly to do electrolysis, and that is to come up with a, a slight variation of electrolysis, and that's what we call photocatalysis, where we can take the energy of the sun, ideally, directly to convert the water into hydrogen and oxygen. So it's yeah. all done, scaled down to the size of a several, several tens of nanometer-sized particle. And what does the apparatus look like? I mean, is it like a, uh, a solar panel? Is that uh, the, the kind of thing that we're, we're looking at? So in one embodiment, it, it can look like a solar panel, but in its simplest form, just imagine a powder that you just sprinkle in a glass of water mm. and you take it out to the sun and like magic, hydrogen and oxygen bubbles yeah. come out of it. Yeah. And then you can separate those. And, and then you can subsequently separate those, yeah. So you have a catalyst, yep. you have water. Mm sunlight, and then you get oxygen and hydrogen produced. That's it. So you decouple from the electricity grid, so yep. you don't pay the prices there, and also you have an inherently much simpler system, so therefore you don't need to require the cost of, for example, the large capital expenditure of an electrolyzer and everything else you need as part of an electrolysis plant. Now, the downside, of course, is that it only works when the sun shines. Right. But that's just like photovoltaics. Yeah. 
So that means if you make your hydrogen and your oxygen, you're almost certainly going to need to store it somehow. Yeah. But that's an issue that the hydrogen economy, if it grows, needs to approach anyway. So while fears of a Hindenburg 2.0 situation can easily be put to rest, hydrogen's much more serious challenge comes in the form of high electricity costs and non-existent energy storage systems. But these are challenges we've faced and overcome before. Since they were first introduced to our electricity market, the cost of renewable energy forms such as solar and wind have nosedived as technology and uptake improves year on year. Today, Australia has the largest uptake of rooftop solar per person in the world. So what progress are we making to ensure that green hydrogen overcomes its challenges and follows in the footsteps of other renewable energy forms? So you've, you know, you've managed to generate this process in the lab or, or outside the lab uh, in the sunshine. Yes, we've done uh, some you, experiments uh, outside, yes. <laughs> have you scaled this up into a kind of pre-industrial scale production facility? So that's what we're working on doing. So other groups around the world have demonstrated that this photocatalysis can be scaled up. And there's, there's one example in Japan where they've scaled it up to a, a system that's 100 square meters. So might not sound like a lot, but that demonstrates, therefore, that it can be scaled up. That's right. Just like photovoltaics, you have multiples. It's like a a module system. So So that's demonstrated that that's possible. What it all comes down to is how efficiently you can then couple that solar energy into your reactor to give you your hydrogen and your oxygen. And that's explicitly what our research program is focused on. And so for, you know, for industries that are quite remote and have quite heavy electricity requirements, the option for local production in this form must be very, very appealing. Yes, that's one of the advantages we think of this approach is that it can be used for off-site requirements such, such as mines. Mines, steel processing. Steel or... processing tends to be coupled, uh, connected to the grid. Yeah. Okay. So they, yep. they can still have access to, to those green electrons. Yeah. <laughs> But, but yeah, definitely mining sites, they're often not connected up to anything. So if they need electricity, they're running diesel generators. Yeah. And, and, and you're also working together with, with a company here in, in South Australia, together with, with Spark, is that right? Called Spark, yes. Yep. So a ASX-listed company based in Australia called Spark Technologies. Yeah. They have a, a long association with the University of Adelaide. They do some work in coatings using graphene. And they became aware of, of our nascent technology and were keen to get involved. And we've also got involved a much larger, although not ASX-listed company, called FFI, Fortescue Future Industries, mm. which is the renewable energy arm of Fortescue Metals Group, FMG. Oh, interesting, yeah. Of which many people are aware of the name of the, the CEO, they are. Andrew Forrest. <laughs> so what, what has been Spark and uh, FFA's interest in, in this area? And what are they, what are they investing in? So they're investing in the development of the technology. Yeah. So we've embarked on a, on a program. We've created a, a company called Spark Hydrogen, where we are now looking at developing the reactor that I described before, coupling solar energy to produce hydrogen and oxygen as efficiently as we possibly can. Yeah. And they're pretty happy with the results so far. We've been going for almost a year now. And yes, I think I please them every time I give my monthly updates. <laughs> 
That's great. So we can really see that through this type of innovation and new technology that's coming on, you know, hydrogen will have a part in uh, the future energy production system globally. Well, that's what we would like to think so, yes. Particularly, as we said before, those hard to decarbonize aspects of, of society. Yeah. So give us, a, uh, give us an idea of the relative efficiency of uh, photocatalytic versus something like a solar photovoltaic process. How, how efficient uh, are, are the two? How comparable are yeah, the two? Th that's a good question. So if we think about making hydrogen from electrolysis and a photovoltaic cell, so you might have some on your roof typically operating at about 20% efficiency. Hmm. So there's 20% there. That's the amount of energy that you can capture from the sun and convert it into electricity. Then you take that electricity and put it into an electrolyzer, and those electrolyzers typically operate at about 80%. Hmm. So there's about a 17% conversion of the solar energy into chemical energy, hydrogen and the oxygen. So that's what we call the solar to hydrogen efficiency, or STH. So this is a very, very important Oh, number. okay. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize I'd stumbled on something yeah. so important. Yeah. <laughs> so with photocatalysis, there are systems that have efficiencies up in that sort of area, but they're very unstable. Yeah. But there are photocatalysts that are quite stable, but they have lower efficiencies. Yeah. So the efficiency at the moment is probably around the 1% mark, solar to hydrogen efficiency. But the good news is, is that theoretically, it can be up to 30% efficient. So for this, we take a look at the development of photovoltaic cells over the past 40 years, mm. where the early photovoltaic cells were only a few percent efficient, and now they approach the theoretical maximum efficiency. Because as research has gone on, they've understood what the requirements are to make them more and more efficient. Yeah. The nice thing about this current photocatalysis technology is we know how to make it efficient in terms of we can, when it absorbs a photon, it needs to do a whole lot of things like charge separation, charge transfer, and then we need to get those electrons and holes to the right places where we can drive the chemistry to give us our hydrogen and the oxygen. That can be now done with something approaching 100% efficiency. Yeah. But it can only operate in the high energy parts of the, of the solar spectrum. So example, in the ultraviolet. Yeah. So we can only use the high energy parts of the solar spectrum and that's what limits the solar to hydrogen efficiency, the STH, at, at the moment. But So what's happening now, in great earnest all around the world, hundreds and hundreds of material scientists, research groups are developing new materials that are starting to absorb more and more of the spectrum and increase that efficiency. And so the expectation is, is again, over the next five to 10 years, is that the efficiency of those photocatalysts are going to be, to be improved steadily over yep. time. But the thing about our technology is we can use any photocatalyst. We're developing the reactor that uses the photocatalyst. So we've got a way of coupling the solar energy into a reactor so that those photocatalysts, if they're more efficient, we can make our process more efficient as well. Yep. So the, the two things need to go hand in hand together in, yep. in parallel. So we're improving our reactor technology and there's a, a global advance occurring with the materials development as well. And hopefully they'll converge sometime in the not too distant future where we'll enable to, to develop green hydrogen directly from photocatalysis at a price that's going to be competitive with that form from, from natural gas, steam methane reforming. 
Yeah. So we've done. There's been a whole lot of techno-economic assessments done, and it's definitely achievable within the the expected improvement in the photocatalyst. It's so a bit technical that, there. <laughs> technically possible. Yeah. Yes, and in my view, absolutely feasible. So is that, is that the holy grail in your area? So if you had a grant, massive amount of funding that was available, uh, you you weren't really that constrained on what it could be uh, could be spent on, and it was a granting period of ten years. So what what would what would you do, and how would you make history in this area? I think I'd still focus on the photo on the reactor development because if we had a, a single research grant, we would have a few ideas about how to make an improved photocatalyst. But the fact that it's being done by hundreds of groups around the world with their separate approaches yeah. means that there's a much one of better opportunity. Find one of them's going to yeah, find yeah, it. Yeah, yeah one yeah. of them's going to find the, the pot of gold. Yeah. And it, it's, it's the race that everybody started. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I like to think that we're separate from the race because yeah. we're we're going to be assuming, okay, you're going to make the photocatalyst. But once you've got that, then instead of having that period where you then need to optimize how it works, yeah. we're doing that work right now. But we've got a, a system that we, we can work with where we can optimize everything. And, and that's sort of still fun as, as it is. So, Greg, you've, you've produced, you've done it after 10 years of research, you've produced the reactor and uh, a group in Sweden has come up with the ultimate uh, catalytic compound that's uh, the secret source, the, uh, the Coca-Cola <laughs> uh, recipe that, that, that's added in. How is this going to change our lives? So what I see, a vision that I have is that we'd have all of these reactors in a high solar region, such as we have in the outback Australia. Mm. So these are all laid out there. We're not getting in anybody's way by, by putting them out in the desert. And these things are all just being exposed to sunlight and producing hydrogen and oxygen. Now, getting water there is another thing that, <laughs> that needs to be resolved. That's an important So issue. top of the Gulf might be a good place. Yes, top of the Gulf would be a good place, although it, it tends to be on the coast, the solar resource isn't quite as good. So you yeah. just need to be a bit inland. Yeah. So getting the water there is going to be an issue. But what you then produce is hydrogen and oxygen. And what we envision is we separate it and we directly would put that hydrogen and oxygen into pipes. For example, the pipes that currently crisscross the country. And so instead of being filled with natural gas, we put hydrogen in and pipe it around the country where it, it, it can be used for the best way to assist with the decarbonisation process. So it's decarbonising, but also presumably sending down energy costs and some production costs as well. Yes, yeah, so we hope that the hydrogen produced in this way is going to undercut hydrogen produced from fossil fuels. And because it's used in so many different industries, you're going to see those savings across that sector. Sure, every, everybody will want the cheap hydrogen. Yep. And then you know, another aspect of it is that those new industries will need to learn, need to modify their, their processes to take hydrogen instead of something else, if, if they're using hydrogen to displace some other energy source. Yeah. But that's a body of work that's, that's happening now anyway. It, it's like, uh, you know, electric vehicles are the future. Nobody's really going to argue about that. Hydrogen is the future in, in some of these sectors. Absolutely, yes. And we're moving towards that. Constantly. We're moving towards yeah. it and... <laughs> The thing is, we have to do that because nobody else can see an alternative to a decarbonized energy fuel. 
Well, thanks very much, Craig, and thanks for painting, you know, a, a really impressive picture, I think, of how hydrogen will play a part in our, in our energy future and uh, going through those really interesting snippets of the, the history of carbon and uh, allaying our fears, fears that hydrogen will be a, a safe energy source. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Great to be on the Discovery Pod. After simmering away in the background for years, Australia's hydrogen economy seems set to have its time in the sun. And it's people like Greg who are putting in place the systems needed to make this future a reality. In the race to decarbonise Australia and its heavy industries, Greg's vision of hydrogen pipelines crisscrossing the country may soon become a reality. Thank you, Greg, for sharing this vision with us. And thanks as well to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review. Why not rate us five stars? Share with your friends and family and hit follow for future updates. In our next episode, Dr. Julianne Tui joins the Discovery Pod to explore reforming our criminal justice system. We see that in our prison population with men and women with intellectual and cognitive disabilities, with very severe and ongoing mental health problems, with issues with self-harm and suicidal ideation. Prisons are warehouses for these very people. Sending people with those complex problems to prison does not make those complex problems go away. Dr Julianne paints a dark picture of the current response to crime and makes a thought-provoking case for approaching crime and punishment very differently. Be sure to listen in. In the meantime, if you have a topic you think we need to explore, you can get in touch with us at podcast at adelaide.edu.au. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and you're listening to The Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. So, what do you want to know next?